Hello everyone. Today's story, The Boundary Waters, is written by Brooke McKenzie. If you're an avid listener of the Night's End podcast, you might recognize Brooke's name from the previous episode, The Elevator Game, which is a fantastic episode with a wide cast. I recommend you going and listening to it if you haven't listened to it already. This time, Brooke has been gracious enough to supply two copies of her book, Ghost Games, for a giveaway competition. All you have to do is be following both of our Instagram accounts. That's at Night's End Podcast and at MacBrookPro. You also need to leave a comment on Brooke's Instagram about the episode and tag two friends who you think would enjoy this thrilling episode. Now sit back, relax, turn the lights down, and enjoy this episode. church. Finally. You're right, friend. We must be quick. We don't know what the priestess has planned with the help of Alexander. Yes, we must make haste. You have returned. These fine people have told me of your generosity in guiding them to the safe place of the Lord. Alexander, we know. What do any of us really know, hmm? From fire breeds new beginnings. Not when it involves innocent people. Jeremiah, how are you here? You were purified and released. Jeremiah, I know you've been through a lot, but we need to focus right now. Yes, uh, of course. Abigail, come here. I thought I told you to get out. We need to help you and the other townsfolk be free of this place. Abigail? Who is this? Another of the unfortunate. We are all children under the watchful eye. I'm telling you now, I have never seen her before. What is with her right hand? Her fingernails are missing. The high priestess can shapeshift. We must hold this girl and make sure it is not that witch in disguise. No matter what you do, no matter the steps you take, This realm is mine. The next reckoning is almost upon us. Don't you dare close your eyes. Witness the power of the redeemed. Friend, focus your energy.
The Boundary Waters. Written by Brooke McKenzie. Narrated by Jamie Petronas. June 6th, 1993, 7.45am. I will spare you the formality of Dear Diary and simply introduce myself. My name is Kyle, and this is the journal I will be using to record my various observations, thoughts, and assorted data as I begin my new job as a ranger-slash-environmental scientist in the Boundary Waters Canoe Area, a nature preserve that begins in northern Minnesota and extends up into Canada. In the last few days, I have permanently shed my academic cloak and identity as a professor of forest science at Humboldt State University in Northern California and donned the rugged fabrics of the outdoor explorer. It is my hope that these pages will serve as efficient record-keeping as I communicate various findings with the Forest Service. However, it is my more secret hope that these pages will be entertaining and illuminating enough to eventually morph into a memoir that people will want to read. At least those individuals who, like me, find nature to be endlessly fascinating. A fount of inspiration. Ambrosia for the muse. Others, of course, will have no interest whatsoever. To each his own. The next two weeks will be spent in trainings, tours of campgrounds, and plenty of forced social interactions with the other ranger trainees. I will tolerate these activities to the best of my ability, knowing that my reward is the nature-drenched solitude that awaits. June 20th, 1993, 7.45 a.m. The knowledge I've acquired over the past two weeks about the Boundary Waters has engendered more than feelings of awe within me. I now have a reverence for this place that borders on religious fanaticism. I've devoured information about its flora and fauna, its resilient ecosystems, its topography, and its water health. It is one of the very few places in America where human disruption is kept to a minimum. Campers portage in with their supplies and portage everything back out again. Campsites are simple and consist solely of a fire pit, a sturdy branch or beam for hanging the food pack, and some distance away from a cleared area where the tents would be pitched. A chemical toilet known as the throne. The throne resembles a tree stump in its height, shape, and color. Everything is meant to be left completely pristine. Other than ashes, fish skeletons from a freshly caught meal, and whatever is deposited into the throne, no waste of any kind can be left behind. It is a place utterly void of wanton consumption and harmful disposal. After sunset, the forest becomes so thick with mosquitoes that one can scarcely see three feet in front of one's nose. All of the ranger trainees beat a retreat to the cabins that have served as our temporary home for the last two weeks, lest we be devoured by a cloud of biting insects. This early forest dispersal and natural endpoint of socializing suits me just fine. I've engaged in a few perfunctory card games with the others, but for the most part I'm happy being left to my books. Tomorrow I will find out my first set of tasks as well as the area that I will inhabit for the next few weeks. My feelings of excitement and anticipation will no doubt prevent me from sleeping deeply tonight. June 21st, 1993, 7.45 a.m. My first assignment, collecting water, algae, and animal scat samples for the next two weeks at Lake Alice, one of the numerous lakes that comprise the Boundary Waters. Something seems to be disrupting the ecosystem there resulting in such symptoms as discolored water, strange bird migration patterns and animal behavior, and unexplained fish fatalities. The ever-faithful beavers that typically populate Lake Alice in high numbers also seem to have migrated to other lakes. 
I certainly have my work cut out for me. It had been an unusually wet spring with record levels of rainfall. My initial thoughts, of course, are that this excess rain has thrown a monkey wrench into Lake Alice's particular ecology. The fact that surrounding lakes seem to be unaffected, however, serves to deepen the mystery. Perfect. A worthy challenge right out of the gate. Lake Alice is perhaps one of the most difficult lakes to get to from the Boundary Waters entry point at the aptly, but unimaginably named, Lake One, where the ranger cabins are located. While this means more exertion in terms of paddling and portaging, the benefit is that it will be sparsely populated by campers. This should make for an easier and more focused research experience, as part of my job in the hybrid role of ranger-slash-researcher is, of course, to monitor the campers. Or, if I am choosing to not mince words, to babysit them. The fewer the campers, the fewer the headaches. I was never destined for au pair work. It will take me two days to reach Lake Alice if I paddle from dusk to dawn. I'd be remiss if I did not mention the fact that I am dreading the numerous portages between lakes that will require me to get out of my canoe and carry it, along with my gear, for several hundred rods. In case you didn't know, dear reader, a rod is a unit of measurement equal to the length of a canoe, or approximately 16 feet. But these are the less pleasant aspects that must be endured for peace and quiet. The fact that I will have to traverse six different lakes before reaching Lake Alice also means that I will be able to collect ample samples from these lakes for comparison with the water in Alice. Silver linings abound. I leave tomorrow at dawn. June 24th, 1993. 6am. I have made it to Lake Alice, and not without mishaps. One of the portages had completely washed away from a particularly destructive storm earlier in the spring, which meant having to wade through knee-deep mud while dragging my canoe and supplies behind me like a wretched pack mule. A full and unopened bottle of cooking oil, a vital supply for surviving on walleye and northern pike, as well as for heating up freeze-dried delicacies, was jettisoned from my pack unbeknownst to me at some point during my journey. Luckily, I happened to pack a spare, not all the way full, but it will last if I ration it, without even remembering having done so. It was as if my baser instincts had appealed to some part of my brain while packing, predicting somehow that such a thing would be needed. I was grateful my brain had listened. The entry point to Lake Alice from the gut-wrenching 270-rod portage is reedy and coated in algae, but after paddling through the morass I was greeted with a surprisingly vast, lapis-hued expanse of lake, it was far larger than what I had envisioned after studying it on the map, and its shape seemed more round and gentle on the eye than I had anticipated. Its shoreline displayed a smattering of diversity that I reasoned might be mirrored by the ecosystem in and around the lake itself. Collections of dense pine trees standing rigidly at the very edge of the lake, craggy rock-faced cliffs, and even stretches of sandy beach. There were plenty of attractions to keep a variety of animal inhabitants happy, an excess of wood for the beavers and muskrats, shallow, reedy, wading areas for the moose, tangles of wild berry bushes for the black bears, and, judging by the number of loons bobbing and diving on the lake's surface, plenty of fish. Clearly, the number of fish fatalities reported by my colleagues had not been enough to deter the loons. I followed the map to the dot my supervisor had circled in pen, indicating the campsite I was assigned to during my stay at the lake. It was of course, all the way across the lake from the entry point, 
which meant that my scrawny academician arms would continue to receive a hearty wilderness workout from paddling. I made quick work of setting up camp, locating the throne, pitching my tent, unpacking supplies, and hanging the food pack from the designated tree limb that would be out of reach from bears. The sun was beginning to think about dipping below the horizon, and I wanted to paddle my canoe around the lake to collect my first sample, and possibly a fish, before dark. I managed both in quick succession, and so I decided to troll around so that I could begin a sketch of the lake in my notebook. I was able to make satisfactory progress on the sketch until the force became a cacophony of mosquito buzzing. It was alarming just how loud the dull roar was, even from the middle of the lake. As I reached shore, I steeled myself to run through the curtain of bugs, shielding my eyes with my hand as I did in diving headfirst into my tent. While I was able to spot and kill the few stragglers that had been able to take advantage of the brief unzipping of the tent flap, I can only hope that I have not inadvertently left a solitary mosquito alive, humming in its melancholy to feast on me during the night. 2.45 a.m. I am awake. The layer of sleep that coats me tonight is thin and liquid, and accompanied by a matching layer of sweat on my skin. I am awake because of a sound. It is almost as if the pitch of the mosquitoes has changed. The whine seems to have descended dramatically into a deep, whirring moan. I can feel the ground vibrating ever so slightly, even through the layers of my air mattress and sleeping bag. The sound is both ubiquitous and consistent. It is not the sporadic, guttural sound of growling bears roaming the nocturnal landscape for food. It is everywhere at once. Sounds almost mechanical, steady and perpetual. Surely there is a logical explanation. It is the sound of something man-made and exploitative and disruptive to the natural surroundings of the Boundary Waters. I'll explore further in the morning. For now, my only response is to fight for a few more hours of sleep before daylight. 1993, 9.20 p.m. I spent the morning exploring the woods around my campsite in an effort to locate the sound from last night. So far, it remains elusive. I then ventured out into the lake to collect samples from several different locations, which I have dutifully documented on my hand-drawn map. After lunch, my supervisor contacted me in the walkie-talkie and asked me to inspect a campsite that hadn't fared well in the wet spring weather. The fire pit had washed away entirely, and the throne had suffered a gruesome flooding episode. I spent some time exploring the woods around the site, and I couldn't help but notice a quiet that permeated the woods. The air was absent of birdsong and even the whistle of wind. Only the sound of my footsteps through the undergrowth disrupted the stark silence. I ventured deeper into the woods to look for scat samples to collect. Those delightful treasure troves of information about the health of both an individual animal as well as an environment, but saw none. This was surprising to me, as this particular section of forest was a buffet of plant, bark, and berry delicacies that would appeal to black bears, moose, and even smaller rodents. And yet, it all seemed to be untouched. I took some extra water samples from the shoreline in this area to see if the answers were contained in the water. So far, all answers to my questions have remained out of reach. 
I am unsettled by the silence. After communicating my various findings and lack thereof via walkie-talkie to my colleagues, I decided to spend some time trolling around the perimeter of the lake in my canoe so that I could add more detail to my notebook map sketch. A pair of loons followed me for the duration of my journey, their sleek obsidian bodies peppered with pure white. They moved with purpose, perfectly engineered for their surroundings and supporting role in nature, and eyed me with an astute mixture of curiosity and suspicion. After over an hour of paddling, I found a deep spot in the lake below a rock face that rose no more than eight feet out of the water, and I decided to strip down to my underwear and make it my own personal diving platform. I was fairly confident that no humans or animals would be alarmed by my whoops of delight as I jumped, cannonballed, and swanned over to my heart's content. Even the loons stayed put and acted as my captive, if thoroughly unimpressed, audience. The rock face, with its granitic properties and quartz and feldspar flecks, took on a subtly pleasant sheen in the late afternoon sun, and when it did, I noticed something unexpected. The entire rock face, from the very top to the water level, was covered with small carvings. They were subtle and so numerous that they had simply blended in at first, and I really had to look to see them. The Boundary Waters is certainly home to many Native American pictographs that have been carved and painted on a variety of surfaces. These, however, were less pictograph and more geometric shapes and straight lines intersecting at various angles. Almost like runic letters, though, having studied the runic alphabet, I could say with confidence that they were not. Given their definition in the rock, these appeared to be fairly recently created. Based on their number and clean precision, I could deduce that they would have taken a long time to carve into the rock. I ran my wet hand over them, darkening them slightly. The best conclusion I could draw was that the carvings were the work of some bored campers with fancy knives. Overly outfitted and underly sensible, my supervisor liked to say about far too large a percentage of Boundary Waters visitors. And while I could see how a camper would have managed to make a carving at the water level and at the top of the small cliff, I couldn't figure out how the carvings in the middle had been made. It simply defied logic, because there was no stable surface on which to stand in order to be able to reach the places where the carvings were. As I paddled back to camp, I noticed a strange humming sensation in the hands that had touched the carvings. I also noticed an unsettled sensation in my stomach. Strange. When I got back to my campsite, I saw a tree near my tent quaking, as if it had just been disturbed by an animal or bird making a hasty getaway upon my arrival. Perhaps there are signs of life after all. 3.05 AM. It is the middle of the night and I have been stirred awake by noises in the forest behind my tent. It is cloudy, and so the stars and moon are of no assistance to my vision. I am puzzled by these noises. They are not the telltale crashing of black bears, moose, or anything else that might be foraging at night. While I hear trees being jostled and undergrowth being crushed, the sounds are traveling rapidly. If I strain my ears and keep listening, I can hear a distinctive pitter-patter in its movement. As my ears continue to adjust and listen, I am certain that what I am hearing is the sound of bipedal feet hitting the ground. Something is running through the forest in the pitch dark with surprising agility.
and it is doing so while upright on two legs. I am racking my brain but do not know what could be making these noises. Even humans cannot so lightly maneuver a dark forest without a light source. And I can tell that there are no flashlight beams zigzagging in a telltale fashion through the trees. I must collect my courage and go out to investigate. Three twenty a.m. I could see nothing outside of my tent, despite having called out and directed my flashlight into the forest. However, the voracious biting of the mosquitoes made it difficult to stay out there for long. I will not be able to sleep as long as these noises surround me. My brain continues picking and prodding the air for clues. My senses have heightened. I've turned on my lantern and will busy myself with reading and writing until I can draw a satisfactory conclusion or the sounds stop. Whichever occurs first. I am hoping for the latter. 3.47 a.m. I am writing down what I saw a moment ago. It is my hope that in writing it down my brain can process what I've just seen and then break it down into logical pieces with the end goal of making sense of it all. Because it certainly does not make any sense to me. I'm hoping that the culprit is lack of sleep, but I am uncertain. I was unable to reason with my very full bladder any longer, and so I affixed a headlamp to my forehead and walked a few paces from my tent to relieve myself. Just beyond the aura of light, out of my peripheral vision, I saw something begin to emerge from the forest and walk towards me. It was tall and on two legs, and for a brief second I thought it was a bear standing erect and sniffing the urine-soaked air as they do. But as I turned to look directly at it, I saw that the figure was distinctly human. It was wearing no clothes that I could make out in that moment, and its skin looked gray and almost shimmering in my flashlight beam. A hoarse cry leapt from my throat before I could stop it. And then it was gone. It took me a moment to catch my breath and wipe the urine from my underwear. With great caution, I walked to where it had been standing to examine for footprints. There were none. I, of course, made a beeline for my tent and my heart and breath have finally returned to their normal rates. I know two things for certain. One, sleep will most definitely be non-existent tonight. Two, I do not tend to imagine things, nor do my eyes tend to play tricks on me. Many years of studious nighttime observations have trained my brain to report accurately in limited light. My assuredness in this fact about myself and faith in my almost superhuman rationality and sensual acuity bring me little comfort tonight. June 26th, 1993, 2.30 p.m. I have a strange mark on my right arm. It is two purple semicircles that resemble a bite. The few minutes of sleep that I did manage to get last night were restless and filled with vivid, violent dreams. It would not be entirely surprising if I had managed to bite myself in my sleep. This morning I went fishing at dawn. The number of loons floating on the surface of the lake seemed to have multiplied, 
which I did not think would bode well for my chances of catching breakfast due to competition. Happily, I was proven wrong and returned to my campsite with two corpulent walleye. After going through the motions of skinning, filleting, dipping and breading, and frying, once again I thanked the fates that they had not left me completely without cooking oil. I plated up the fish with the helping of Hash Browns O'Brien, a Northwood specialty, and cocked my ear to listen. Once again, the usual campground sounds were absent. The lack of bird and assorted small woodland creature sounds is unsettling, truly. Plus, as I learned last night, my brain is beginning to conjure up sounds and images to fill the blank spaces where the familiar sights and sounds of the forest should be. After much thought and reflection, I'm beginning to think that my strange hallucination last night was just that. A hallucination. Since there were no footprints or other evidence that anyone had actually been there, I can only draw the conclusion that my imagination is running uncharacteristically wild at the moment. It is nothing more. Three PM After eating my fill and drinking grainy coffee, I needed to make my way to the throne. As I walked in the forest, a new detail revealed itself to me and I'll admit made my heart speed up for a moment. Carved into the trunks of the birch trees that lined the short pathway were directly at my eye level, more of the symbols that I had seen in the rock face the day before. I tried to rack my brain and dig into the more moss-covered, unconscious regions of my memory to see if these symbols had been stored there without my conscious mind noticing. I thought I would have noticed them earlier, as they were somewhat dramatic and certainly out of place, but perhaps they escaped my attention. My senses seem to be dulling as I spend more time in the deathly quiet forest. Either way, there seems to be a bit of a lose-lose scenario. My senses cannot fully be trusted, or someone was wandering around near my tent and carving these shapes while I attempted to sleep. Though I am loath to, I am realizing that I need to search for other people in the forest, while doing my best to remain unseen by them. This was information that would be needed by the other rangers. If their penchant toward vandalism was any indication, these people are up to no good. And they were adept with a knife and apparently able to move around expertly in the dark without using flashlights. I dread the idea of going hunting for humans. Or, as the case may be, if my suspicions are correct, I dread being some kind of potential prey for them. I would much rather take my chances with bears or moose or the occasional hungry wolf pack that wanders down this way from Canada. If there really is a roving band of people inhabiting these woods, would this also explain the absence of animals? This does not seem scientifically plausible. But then again, I'm not sure what I'm dealing with here. I must pluck my courage. Here goes. Six thirty PM. It is now dinner time and the mosquitoes are beginning their discordant fugue. I searched the woods for several hours and found nothing. No footprints, no fresh campfire ashes, no tents, no discarded fish bones. It was as if whoever had been in the forest had simply vanished. But where could they possibly go? I must take a small swig of bourbon that I keep hidden in a flask at the bottom of my backpack for just such emergencies as these. My nerves are fraying like damp rope that has been overly burdened by a too heavy food pack. 
what I wouldn't give to hear a woodpecker boasting its labors as it pecks loudly and routinely, or the chur-churring of aggravated squirrels or darting and rustling of efficient scavengers. Even the typically loquacious loons have fallen silent. For now, all I hear is the rumbling of my own stomach and the frantic skittering of my own reliable thoughts. Tonight I will keep my lantern illuminated and ensure that my bladder is fully emptied before dark. Three twenty a.m. I succumbed to sleep quickly and easily, even in a well-lit tent, but have now been startled awake by a sound emanating from the lake. Loons. Their calls alternate between legato peaks and valleys in a frenetic staccato. It is haunting and otherworldly, but I find myself settled by it, as it is a thoroughly natural sound. There are, from what I can hear outside, dozens of them with more pairs of wings flapping overhead, joining them. While I am delighted that the loons have regained their voices, I must admit that a large and boisterous gathering such as this is not typical loon behavior. An investigation is in order. The loons are swimming in perfectly spaced concentric circles. But the lake... I can hardly believe I'm about to write these words. I must, partly because I doubt the reality of what I have seen and will want documentation to return to later when I am questioning my memory and my senses. The lake is glowing, and the loons swim like devoted dervishes on its surface, swirling and circling. It is illuminated in green. Is it from beneath? Is there some kind of bioluminescent phenomenon that can explain it? Perhaps the northern lights have started early and they are splashing their reflection across the surface of the lake. However, the sky is dark and void of stars. I want to stay in my tent. I should stay in my tent. I should. But now a strange compulsion to investigate is buzzing in the back of my brain like a stray mosquito. I must see what is happening. June 28, 1993, 11.50 a.m. I am trying to remember, but my memories are just a dark void in my head. I remember that two nights ago I stood at the edge of the lake, watching the birds in the glowing water. I've been trying to piece together what happened next. The next thing I knew I found myself standing in the middle of the woods without remembering how I got there. I could once again hear footsteps running in the forest all around me, but could see nothing, especially since I had no flashlight. It was hard to breathe and my body was twitching in its fight-or-flight panic, but somehow my brain was subdued and I could not connect the two in order to move. I felt dizzy and nauseated and grabbed a tree to steady myself. My hand landed on another carving. When it did, an image exploded in my head. It was one that I couldn't decipher or make sense of, and my gut roiled with a strange and primal knowing that it did not originate from me. There is no other way to describe it. It was someone else's thought from someone else's mind. I felt 
disoriented and oddly violated. I shook my head the way I would when trying to force water out of my ear, but I couldn't shake it loose. And I have now come to realize that it was only the first in a series of foreign thoughts that have been force-fed into my head. It is the vandalism of my mind, the desecration of my mental space which has been too great for me to bear. After the first inexplicable image subsided, a stream of stringy vomit ejected itself from my mouth, and I fell to the ground. That same low humming sound from the first night radiated from everywhere and nowhere in particular. I looked around for familiar foliage and realized that I was in the woods a few feet away from the top of the rock face with the strange carvings. The same one where I so blissfully jumped and dived only a few days earlier. Because I had no equipment, I would have to wait until daybreak to find my way back to the camp. I was too weak and not in proper command of my mental faculties to attempt to return at night. I sat against the trunk of a tree, brought my knees against my chest, and rested my head on them. I pinched my eyes shut and covered my ears. I didn't want to hear the footsteps or the humming, and as time passed they jumbled into one singular sound and then everything went silent. So silent, in fact, that it was as if the sound, or any other sound for that matter, had never existed in these woods. It was as if I had made them up completely. I shivered in my fear and exhaustion in the uncharacteristically chilled air until finally dawn broke. When I could see more clearly, I looked down at my forearm where there was a stinging sensation. My entire body had been a veritable symphony of sensation the night before, and so I hadn't thought much of my arm at first. But the stinging didn't subside the next morning, and soon I understood why. On the inside of my arm, from my wrist to the crevice of my elbow, were seven evenly spaced round marks. I ran my fingers over them. They were not raised and too uniformly shaped to be insect bites. I had to fight an urge to cry as I examined them. As I looked more closely, they appeared to resemble the phases of the moon. I did not understand how I could have ended up in the middle of the woods with unexplained marks on my body. I wanted to get back to my tent, back to that small waterproof square of this forest over which I had complete control. It seemed to take forever to get back to my campsite. I couldn't stop shivering. As I walked, my teeth chattered as if I was standing in the Arctic and not by a lake in the summer. When I finally reached my tent, I grabbed the radio and thought about sending a message to the other rangers. But what would I say, exactly? If I told them what had happened, they would assume I was having some kind of psychotic break from the solitude and would not be able to handle life in the Boundary Waters. And maybe they would be right. But I couldn't lose this job. I set down the radio, wriggled into my sleeping bag, and slept, dreamlessly, until the next day. June 29th, 1993. 11.50 a.m. 
I have promised myself that tomorrow, after getting some rest, I will begin my journey back to Lake One. Today, more thoughts are being placed in my head. It started after I touched the symbol on the tree. I do not know where they are coming from. I just know that they are becoming more and more intrusive. Images, alive in technicolor, defile and distract my thoughts. Shapes and faces and animals and snapshots of both gory scenes and growing things. I struggle to remember the individual pieces of the flashing sideshow when it is over. I only know that it is intended to convey destruction and salvation in equal portions. It is intended to activate the entire range of my emotions. It is meant to show me the meaning of something that I cannot yet decipher. My appetite is elusive. Taking down the food pack is not worth the Herculean effort. I have to gather some final water samples before departing, which is the only task that keeps me from fleeing right now. I have to respond to my supervisor's calls on the walkie-talkie and force my voice to stay casual. I have to leave my tent. But it is hard to move. My body craves sleep in a way it never has before. My joints have become somehow made of metal, stiff and so heavy. It is hard to move. In fact, it is impossible. I just need to sleep. I think if I sleep for just a little while, I will feel better and can finish my tasks and prepare to leave. I'm hearing rustling and footsteps outside of my tent. I know that it is not a bear. My marks on my arm throb and pulse. I need sleep. June 30th, 1993. 10 p.m. I managed to sleep for the entire day yesterday, all through the night and throughout the day today. It is now night and I was able to muster the energy to light a fire. I sit inside my tent and watch the walls for shadows and silhouettes. I have the feeling that I am waiting for something. There are no loon calls tonight. There are no sounds at all, in fact. Once again the lake is plunged into utter silence. I am waiting. I can only hear my own ragged and exhausted breath. I am watching. It is hard to stay patient. I want to jump in my canoe and paddle away. But something inside of me is telling me to sit still. I cannot tell if this thought originated from my brain or someone else's. Three thirty a.m. I am not surprised when I hear the footsteps emerging from the forest, but it does not keep me from feeling terror nonetheless. I am both terrified and paralyzed, and this combination runs counter to my survival instincts. The leaden knowledge of this settles deeply into my gut, further rooting me in the ground, making me immobile. The spots on my arm are throbbing. The footsteps are walking, and there are many of them. They enter the campsite and surround my tent, projecting their shadows against it. My body has the urge to flee 
to bolt to get in the canoe and not stop paddling until I've reached another lake. But my brain suppresses it. My brain no longer feels like mine any longer. I can see the outlines of the figures clearly now. The shadows distort them, making their bodies appear slender and their heads appear bulbous. My brain is like a seated and loyal dog, waiting for either a treat or command from its trainer. The shadows have just moved closer, looming larger and darker on the walls of the tent. I wait to hear them speak, to make any sort of sound, but they stay silent. They do not need to speak. They do not owe me any information. I am not worthy of it. By pure chance, I just happen to be here on their lake. But I know they have a plan for me. A final thought wedges itself in my brain like an exclamation and remains there longer than the flashing ephemeral others. It is a message about the Boundary Waters. One that we ignore at our peril. This place, with its rugged nature, azure lakes, and various precious forms of life. The Boundary Waters must remain. At all cost, it must remain. They want me to prepare. To be still, stop writing, and wait. Farewell, dear reader. They are coming for me. You've been listening to the Night's End Podcast, which is a production of Dissonance Media. The Boundary Waters was written by Brooke McKenzie. Brooke McKenzie grew up in Wayzata, Minnesota, and spent her formative years living in a haunted house. Her debut title, Ghost Games, Play at Your Peril, is out now and available on Amazon. Link in the description. To find out more about Brooke, head to bamckenzie.com. Or follow her on Instagram at at MacBrookPro. This episode was narrated by Jamie Patronus, the creator of the hit audio drama series, The Cellar Letters. Listen to it wherever you listen to your podcasts or head to thecellarletters.com. Jeremiah Dawn was performed by James Not Jack. For more from James Not Jack, head to strangefigment.com. Abigail was performed by Erica Ventura. Erica is a mother, narrator, visual artist, and animal husbandry technician. You can check out some of her artwork on Instagram, at E-F-V-E-N-T-U. Or you can visit her artist page at facebook.com forward slash bioartsy. Alexander was performed by Phoenix Fire. For more narrations by Phoenix Fire, head over to youtube.com forward slash Phoenix Fire Narrations. Jimmy Horace was performed by James Barnett. This episode was edited and produced by James Barnett. Remember, to win a copy of Brooke's book, Ghost Games, 
ensure to do the following things. 1. Follow both of our Instagrams. That's Night's End Podcast and MacBrook Pro. 2. Leave a comment on Brooke's Instagram about the episode. And 3. Tag two friends you think that would enjoy this episode. And as always, stay horrific everyone.